I knew this family, this was from uh, years ago, from uh, one of my previous parish assignments. They were, uh, it's a great, great family. I've, I've since lost touch with them, but uh, they were, at the time, they were very active in the parish. Uh, religious ed, outreach, they were helping out in both areas there, uh, parish council. The kids were actually involved in the youth group. Just a really awesome family. They were also, uh, if that wasn't good enough, they were also foster parents. So periodically, uh, you'd see in church with them uh, another kid who was, wasn't theirs, but they were now caring for. And sometimes this would be for months, and you know, I think it was even maybe over, maybe over a year, once or twice. Um, and it was just really amazing to watch. This family would completely embrace this kid who the day before was like a stranger. Um, they just really made these kids part of their family. I remember being at their house um, once when they had just, um, one of these foster kids had just gone back I guess to the birth mother after like a year. And it was, uh, it was brutal. It was brutal, they just found this. The kids were devastated, the parents were devastated. Like they knew it, they knew it was coming, but it was sort of like a death. They, uh, and the forced to care people, and they, they said you really need to really need to keep a distance. You can't be like, you know, reaching out to the kid as much as they wanted to because they, you know, they needed for the, for the new family or the, or the birth mother, whoever it was, to, to reconnect. I remember talking to them once about it, uh, one of these times when I was over there and it was shortly after this. So they were really kind of like grieving, I'd say, like the loss of this kid. And uh, kind of asked them, like, how do you, how do, you, how do you keep doing this? Or like, kind of like, not so much why do you do it, but how do you do it? And I remember their response. They described to me where so many of these kids came from. Kind of hopeless, awful situations. Super dysfunctional, just terrible. Terrible places where no kid, no kid should be raised. Drug-addicted mothers, completely absent fathers. Um, I remember them saying to me, like, these kids have, like, two strikes against them. And their hope was that maybe their presence, even for a couple of months or a year or so, in the life of this kid might, might be the difference. And they weren't even, like, you know, they were kind of not naive about that. But they thought maybe we could be sort of like a lifeline. Maybe they'd even remember that there was like another way of, of being. Um, totally acknowledged the pain of it, of letting them go. But I think they just felt like they were called to do that. Like it was something God kind of wanted them to do. Um, maybe like a week or so after I had that conversation, or a couple of days even, I got a, a note from this mother, the foster mom, the parishioner, 
And she kind of continued the conversation in this, in this note and then gave me a copy of a speech that she had given to some group of people about kind of exactly what I was asking her about. Listen to this. I'm sometimes asked why I foster kids. If letting, letting go causes so much pain, why keep doing it? Why do we continue to invite this type of anguish into our lives? I see it this way. When I was given the gift of motherhood, I received it with the grace necessary to understand that being a mother requires me to not only teach and serve, but also to let go and suffer loss. Why then should I confine these graces to raising only my birth children? I believe I'm called to serve all God's children where possible. So how does a foster parent give away a child to a new mom and dad after caring for them for so long? Well, the answer is pretty simple. The child was never mine to begin with. Not because they were a foster child, but because they're gods. They belong to God, and that's true even of my own children. They're not ours, they're gods. We are merely the stewards. So, we're willing to sometimes absorb that pain. They were just such amazing people. Um, and it wasn't just the mom, it was absolutely the, the husband and father and these kids. And the Lord said to Moses, go speak to the people. Tell them to be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Very simple. In other words, be like God. Says, says God to Moses and Moses to us. Be like God. Be holy. And I'm sitting here looking at this family thinking, how do they do this? Maybe even kind of why do they do it? Maybe it's just this. Maybe they're just holy. I just think they were a very holy bunch of people wrapped into this family. They were like God. I think they probably took these words, this reading, seriously. Be like God. So that means sometimes you absorb the pain of loss if it's gonna mean maybe saving a kid, rescuing a kid, being a, a source of hope and light to a kid who lacks both. That's gonna hurt when we say goodbye, but like, that's what holy people do. Well, it continues. Now jump to the gospel. Jesus said to the disciples, should anyone press you to serve, press, should anyone press you into service for one mile, go for two. I think for this holy family that I'm describing, they went for two. They did the second mile. They're just great people. They just took this all very seriously. We're kind of, I'm kind of mystified by their ability and willingness to keep kind of absorbing, at least back then, this pain. But they weren't. They didn't deny the cost. They didn't deny the pain of it. But I think they just saw it as the second mile. 
their second mile. We've all got different, every, nobody's got the same second mile. I'm not up here saying that all of us are supposed to become foster parents, but they were, and I think they knew it. I think they knew that God wanted that of them. And at times, that would be their second mile. So I just think the logical question for us is, what's ours? What's your second mile look like? The tough stuff, the challenging things that we pursue and that we engage. You know what I think a lot of us do? Or I'll speak for myself, and I don't think I'm alone here. We just kind of classify certain gospel passages as kind of impossible. It's just not realistic. Certain things, certain, certain Jesus teachings, I just can't do, or I won't do, or I'm afraid to do, because they're impossible. So we just refuse to go the extra mile. Actually, it gets worse, it gets even more challenging. Now, listen to this. Jesus said to his disciples, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? Pray for people who persecute you? I mean, who does, who does that? Pray for, love your enemies. How do you love somebody who's persecuting you? Jesus, come on. Maybe impossible, we stamp it with an impossible. Or how about this, when somebody strikes you on your right cheek, we'll just turn the other. Jesus, come on, who does that? Maybe impossible. It really can't be done. Idealistic stuff, Jesus could do it, we're not him. Not realistic to think that we can do those things, that we can be that way. It is until you, you meet somebody who does. And then we get stopped in our tracks. And we look at that person or those people and we're like, I wish I could be that. I'm so in awe of them. It was me in relation to, the, to this family. But you meet people along the way and they remind us that no, it's not impossible. He wouldn't ask us to do something impossible. He asks us to do very, very tough stuff, but not the impossible. That would be cruel. That would be sadistic for him to say, do something you can't. He only asks us of what we're capable. But it's not easy. But you meet people who do it. Remember reading about those Amish people? This was 16 years ago when they... That guy went into the school in Pennsylvania, one-room school, Amish schoolhouse, and he, he killed five kids that night. Oh, and then he killed himself. That night, parents of the deceased kids went to visit the widow of the killer because they knew they had to embrace this forgiveness thing. Maybe it's not impossible. Remarkable, but not impossible. 
Stephen McDonald, New York City police officer, 37 years ago, Central Park, undercover, kids stealing a bike, questions the kid, the kid shoots him, paralyzes him from the neck down for the rest of his life, forgave the kid, forgave the kid before the kid even asked for it. Maybe it is impossible. Oh, I could never do that. Ah, maybe, I don't know, maybe we could. If we don't classify it impossible, maybe we can. Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, tortured South Africa for standing up against an oppressive, corrupt government. He's released, and the first thing he does is forgive the government that imprisoned him for 27 years. And he healed this country and brought down apartheid. Maybe it's not impossible, just crazy hard. Well, maybe you're like, well, all right, okay, yeah, but you know, Amish people and hero cops and Nelson Mandela, they're not us. Yes, they are. You bet they're us. They're just a great version of us. They're the ones who hear these readings and don't say impossible. When I was at uh, St. Anthony's High School years ago, I was asked to be part of this uh, meeting one afternoon. It was with a student and his mother and father and uh, you know, one or two guidance people and I think a teacher as well. And um, the kid was having a very tough time. I, I think he was a junior and he was uh, depressed. Uh, a couple of his friends sort of sounded an alarm to the faculty and then the faculty went to guidance and a couple of months before we had had a, a suicide uh, death of a student. So this was very much on our minds, very sensitive to the, the prospect of this happening again. So. Uh, Anyway, this kid was pretty open talking to Guidance about his struggles. He was depressed, but he was really more overwhelmed, he said. Too much pressure, too much being placed upon him. And the, really, the, the source of it was his father, not so much the mom, the dad, it was the dad. He was this, according to the kid, he was this very intense guy. He just wanted his kid achieving pretty much everywhere. He had him in honors classes and AP courses that he really shouldn't have been in. He was in over his head, so he was feeling the pressure of that. He had the kid playing multiple sports, wasn't looking to do that at all, but this is completely what dad kind of insisted on. Anyway, they, um, they asked me, they thought maybe it would be good for me. One of the guidance counselors said, well maybe, it'll be, why don't you come to this? I didn't know any of the players, any of these, I didn't even know the kid. But they thought maybe just, because they thought this guy was gonna be tough, and they thought maybe having the priest chaplain there would kinda keep things calm. Well, it didn't go well. This guy was really embarrassed by this, angry about it, very dismissive of everything that was being said, kinda condescending. I remember him clearly, clearly a very controlling guy. The guy was like a, kind of a, just a jerk. I was watching the way he was talking it to his wife, like kinda, you could tell he was intimidating her. She was saying things that she didn't even believe because he wanted her to say it. At one point, I hadn't said it, I was kinda just sitting there, I didn't say anything. At one point, 
he said something and I, I got just really kind of irritated by it and I, I kind of cut him off. Politely, I, I think, I hope. Um, no, I mean, I mean it, I think I did. I, I was, because this was like, you didn't want to flare this thing up. And, but he was, I knew he was like lying about something. And I remember looking at the kid and the kid looking at me, like in the look in the kid's eye was like, he's, he's full of it, he's not telling the truth. So I kind of called him out and he did not appreciate that. He came right back at me. And then I kind of came back at him. So like the volume went up and the, it got, this got way more tense. I was supposed to be the peacemaker. That's why I was there. <laughs> now it was like, it, I made it worse. We kind of calmed it down and we didn't talk. We didn't even look at each other for the rest of the meeting. And then I remember at the end of it, him kind of like, kind of almost glaring at me, you know, and I was kind of intimidated, but I wanted to appear tough and I kind of glared back at him. <laughs> um, and that was it. Um, and then I ran into him, you know, a couple of times. He was always at the school, because the kid was always doing stuff. I remember a couple of times seeing him, you know, my office was, was near where he would park to pick the kid up, and if we saw each other, we just sort of like, we would not acknowledge each other. Almost like, just sort of like, look the other way. And then one day, maybe a year after that, oh, I remember being in school, yeah, being in school one night, some meeting, same thing. Just seeing each other and just like, uh, pfft, I'm just not even, gonna, I'm not even gonna acknowledge you. And it was mutual. And then maybe about a year after that, I was, I was in my car one day. I was in Huntington Village. And I'm at a red light. And a car pulls up next to me. So I just kind of look to the right. And I think it's a buddy of mine from home. Who wasn't, you know, shouldn't have been in Huntington. So I was like, whoa. So I beep the horn, and I do this wave. And this guy looks at me, and I'm like, oh my God, it's not my friend. <laughs> it was this clown, this, this father. So I was like horrified that I sort of said hi to him. And he was like stunned that all he sees is me beeping the horn and waving to him. And I probably had this smile that then turned to like a cringe. Like, and then we both kind of looked forward, and. And then we were like, green light, we both just left. Like, I never would have done that. That was a mistake. Like, if Jesus said to me, hey, there's, he, he's right there. Beep the horn and say hello to, hello to him. I would have been like, Jesus, impossible. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to appear in my stupid, insecure head, like, weak. I'm not, gonna be, I'm not gonna smile at this guy. I'm not gonna engage this guy. I prefer to just make believe he doesn't exist. About a month after that episode, I saw him in school. And it was one of these, like, oh no, we were coming down opposite hall, you know, ends of the whole, same hall, and it would be impossible to turn around. It would be ludicrous to, like, do it about face. So we both kind of approached each other, and I'm kind of looking straight ahead. I'm still doing my you don't exist thing. And he says to me, uh, Good evening, Father. And I looked at him and I said, Hey, Mr. Whatever. And then I walked over and embraced him. Absolutely not. That did not happen. No embrace. No way. 
you know, it would be great if that's what happened, but didn't even come close. But I tell you, like, the ice melted. It thawed. No credit to me. It was my mistaken hello. And he reacted to that. And then I reacted to his hello. I gave him a hello back. And then from then on, you know, the few times I saw him until the kid graduated, like we kind of said hello. We never became friends. It was no miracle. Man, but it wasn't impossible. If you had said to me, you know, I, uh, you know, I think you can maybe heal things with this guy, I would have been like, dream on. No way. Look at what we do. We just, we classify some of these teachings as it's just not gonna happen. Until it does. Until you're inspired by the likes of Stephen McDonald or Mandela or those Amish people. Or you're lucky enough to make a mistake and say hello when you didn't mean it and watch how the magic happens. And this Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. Ash Wednesday. You know what Ash Wednesday is all about, it seems to me? The extra mile. It's going the extra mile. Yeah, it's about the other surface stuff. It's about ashes on Wednesday and palms six weeks later and it's about not having meat for a bunch of Fridays in a row. And you know what? If that's the beginning and end of Lent, that's kind of a joke. Because that's a, that's a cakewalk. That's easy. All we do is sub out the meat for some kind of non-meat that we like, don't we? You know, we just do an end run around the sacrifice, around the extra mile. Do more this Lent. Maybe let's think about like what What's my extra mile? What's something I need to do that he's clearly telling me I ought to be doing or I have to stop doing that will be difficult, it will be painful. Kind of like that family and how their hearts ached when they had to say goodbye to these kids that they came to love. That was their extra mile. And we know what McDonald's was and we know what Mandela's was and we know what those Amish people it was. So what's it for us? What's your extra mile? Man, this Lent, let's walk it. Maybe even let's run it. Let's do it.